books in the New Testament. There's an index right at the front of the Bible that will help you find it, and we'll be in chapter 3. Sometimes I like to introduce before we read the passage, but this morning I actually think it'd be just best to read it. And so um, we're picking up in chapter 3, and you'll notice we're picking up mid-sentence. Here in the chapter, look at that, I said I wasn't going to introduce, but I can't help myself. Uh, Here in the chapter, Paul has some concerns, only a few of them. Philippians is actually a relatively positive letter. He's actually written it to thank the Philippian church for a recent financial gift he sent. He's currently in prison, and for the most part, it's a letter of joy. It mentions the word joy than many, any other New Testament letter. Um, but here he is, he's got one concern. There's one group of people who have, have it out for Paul, and they're starting to gain influence in the Philippian church. And so he's creating, he's cultivating a contrast. And so he's just laid out that his... Uh, his background as a Jew, as a Pharisee, as someone committed to the law of God, he's basically thrown out, in essence, that entire life and its value for something better. He's experienced something greater, and so he counts all of that stuff as refuse, as trash in comparison. And it's in the middle of that that he starts to say, this is what I'm about now. And that's where we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 3 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, all of us find ourselves this morning in a similar place to Paul. We may may not be in prison. Uh, None of us are uh, apostles, eyewitnesses of your resurrection. Uh, and, And some of us this morning may not even be Christians, but all of us find ourselves in the midst of a life that we're trying to make sense of. Um, And all of us are moving in one direction or another. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand where we are on the map this morning, where we're going, and how to get there. I pray this in your name. Amen. I know that New Year resolutions have fallen out of fashion and we've moved on to other things. One of them I've seen for the last few years is the the one-word approach, right? where you come up with 
one word that's going to be your focus for the new year. Um, here, in this passage, we have something similar to that. Paul gives us a one thing. He says, this one thing I do. Whenever we use that word one in that way, what are we doing? We're focusing. We're tuning the laser to be direct. We're, we're making one thing the sharp cutting edge or the point of how we're going to live our lives. And to be honest, all of the one thing passages, of which there's four or five in the New Testament, would have been good places to reflect as we move into a new year. For example, there's the one that David gives us all the way back in the Psalms. One thing that I desire of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and know the beauty of the Lord. There are others, but the one I wanted to point to this morning I think is helpful because it sounds like Paul is coming out of, uh, of year 67 and looking forward to year 68. It seems like this is New Year's reflections. But that's one of the things that I think is important about this one thing. This is not just Paul's one thing for the new year. This is Paul's one thing for the new life. Ever since Paul became a Christian, his focus has shifted. What he's about has shifted. And anyone who knew Paul or encountered Paul could see that pretty evidently. Who he was before he met Jesus and who he was after were not just different people, but going about life in completely different ways, headed to different places. And we find here that Paul has, um, has focused on one thing. And it's worth pointing out this morning that focus is helpful. Right? It gives us uh, direction to our trajectory. As I said, all of us have hope but we all know what it's like uh, to be hijacked by a false hope, to get caught up in something that if we would really just stop and take a breath would go, this is so unimportant, this is so unessential, we would put it in the category of distraction if we would just take the time to assess. When we have a one thing or a one word or even a resolution, it gives us both a point on the horizon to walk towards and a tool for assessment to get us back on track right? And so what I want to do this morning is to focus on our focus. I want to realign as we move into the new year and talk about this one thing, because there could be a lot of one things for you this year. Probably all of them are good. You know, my one thing for the year is I want to get out of debt. I want to finish going to school. I, I want to, you know, there's a whole list of things that could, uh, that could fall on that list, and they're probably good things. But the one that Paul gives us this morning is clearly a best thing. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because at the end of your life, you're going to look back. You're going to assess. You're going to put your life into piles of things that I'm glad I did, things that I wish I hadn't done, right? As many of you are probably doing with 2017 right now, right? Uh, you're going to do that fully and completely at the end of your life. You're going to look back. And once again, there are going to be those two categories, but then there's going to be the things I wish I had done more of. 
And oftentimes, if you listen to older Christians, they give answers in this direction. So, for example, Billy Graham. Billy Graham is this evangelist uh, who has been a part of the American landscape uh, for the last 60 years, a presence, almost a household name, even in non-Christian households, has spoken publicly um, before more people in the world than almost any other American uh, in history. And I heard an interview with him a few years ago where somebody was asking, what, what would you do differently in your life? And he just said, I wish I would, read, would have read the Bible more. It's like, really? You seem so driven, so accomplished. This is, this is the one thing you wish you'd do more. The reason why I say this one thing that Paul gives us this morning is the best one thing is because it's the one that comes with no regrets, where you'll never feel like you spent too much time or spent too much energy. There's an occasion right before Jesus dies where a woman named Mary comes and she breaks this alabaster container full of precious perfume and pours it out upon Jesus. And some of the disciples, Judas in particular, throw a fit. And they go, what a waste. That was worth 300 days wages, almost a year's worth of wages in that bottle that we could have taken, and Judas says, and given to the poor. But what he really means is, I could have taken for myself, as John lets us know. But nonetheless, they look at that and they go, what a waste. You just dumped out an entire bottle on Jesus. But I want to tell you something this morning. Mary has no regrets. She doesn't look back on that and go, they were right. I should have thought that through. I could have utilized my resources better. No, she saw that act as what it was, as a complete act of worship and devotion that was worth every penny. What I want for us is to come to the end of our lives and be able to put the hashtag worth it on it. Okay? And so that's why I want to look at what Paul says. And so as he says, this one thing I do... Look at verse 13. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies behind, I press on towards the goal. Do you hear the verbal metaphor there? Straining forward and pressing towards the goal. What do you think of? You're an American. You think of chariots of fire, right? You think of the music and the slow motion camera. You think of a race. And that's the language that he's using here. He's got a goal in mind, and so it's worth... Before we talk about the one thing, before we talk about the how to get there, it's worth us talking about where we're going this morning. And he gives it to us in a couple of different ways. Look at the first one in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Okay. That's the finish line. That's the goal, is perfection. And the first thing we see here is that Paul recognizes he hasn't arrived yet. He's not there yet. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you're familiar with Paul this morning if you find that to be somewhat discouraging. Because Paul is a pretty impressive character. Okay? His, his devotion level is factor five. His commitment to the Christian life, the things that he's given up, what he's accomplished, starting churches all over the Roman Empire, okay? He's so committed to the cause, he's writing this letter from prison, where he is because he's a Christian and won't stop doing what he's doing. 
And he looks at his life, and even there, he doesn't see that cell that he's sitting in as his retirement. He doesn't go, that's good. That's enough. This is an interesting thing. In fact, notice what he says later on in the passage. He says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. You know what's interesting? That word there for mature, that's the adjective for the earlier verb, perfect. So what he says, if I could paraphrase here, is not that I'm perfect yet. Let anyone who is perfect think the same way. In other words, what he's saying is an awareness of your incompletion is a manifestation of your maturity. Let me say that again with less syllables. Okay. Knowing you're not perfect is evidence that you're growing. And we can see this in Paul's own life. Over the course of his life, we have one letter that's relatively early on from when he first became a Christian. And he looks at himself and he looks at others and he's talking specifically, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, about the other apostles and he says, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. You see, if you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, he was an adversary of Christianity. He was uh, trying to destroy it, in fact, and anyone who believed in Jesus. But he has this radical conversion and becomes a Christian, and he can't really forget his past. And so he says, out of all of the apostles, out of the 12 that spent time with Jesus, I'm at the bottom rung because I persecuted the church. Later on, about midway through his life, he's writing again, and he says something similar, but it is different. This time he says, I'm the least of all the saints. He says, out of all Christians, I take the bottom rung. And then in the last letter we have from Paul that might precede his death by at most a couple of months, maybe as short as a couple of weeks, Second Timothy, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Now, you really only have two options when you see that progression, okay? If you try and paint it, if you, if you make a line of all of the people and where they're at in history that are Christians, either Paul is falling down the ladder as he gets older, and effectively following Jesus has made him a worse and worse person, or his perspective is shifting as he follows Jesus. I can't resist, so let me just give you an illustration, one that I've used before. When we look at robotics or artificial intelligence or animation, computer animation, we encounter what we call the uncanny valley. Okay? The uncanny valley in theory basically says the closer you get to reality, the more disturbing it is when it lets you down. Okay? So when you were a kid and your Teddy Ruxpin was telling you a story and the batteries wound down and his voice started to decay, it bothered you a little bit. But if your wife of 15 years batteries ran down and started to decay, it'd freak you out, right? That's the uncanny valley. It's that the closer we get to reality, the bigger the distance feels between. That's how Paul felt about Jesus. Because every step he took in his life to become more like Jesus was also a step closer to Jesus and a better understanding of how far he still had to go. But nonetheless, the goal Paul has in mind is perfection. In Romans chapter 8, there's a verse that Christians love to quote. It says that all things work together for good 
to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Effectively, the verse says that anything we encounter in our life as Christians, we can say, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, because he's demonstrated his love in Jesus Christ, we can know that it will bring about good in our life. But oftentimes, we don't read the next verse. Verse 29 of Romans 8 says, to be conformed to the image of his son. All things work together for good. What good? The good of making us more like Jesus. That's the finish line that Paul has in mind here. And he rightfully looks at his own life and he says, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. There's another way he talks about it. And this is earlier in verse 10. Once again, he's stating what he wants here in contrast to the life that he's abandoned. He says, I've forsaken finding my value in these things, uh, you know, my, my righteous brownie points, my heritage, my accomplishments, for knowing Christ. And he says in verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, it's a little morbid, Paul. But look where he finishes, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear that word attain? What is that? That's finish line material, right? And so one way he talks about his perfection, here he calls it the resurrection of the dead. Now, let's deal with something that can make you nervous. Verse 11 says that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. I mentioned earlier here that the metaphor that Paul is primarily using is running a race. Is he saying here that if he doesn't run fast enough or run hard enough or far enough before he literally drops down dead, he will not experience what we as Christians call eternal life? That's not actually what Paul is saying. If you just read the rest of the letter, you'll see that Paul is filled with confidence that his eternal future is completely secure. In fact, he has the weirdest conversation with himself in chapter one where he goes, as I've been sitting here in prison and reflecting on the fact that they might put me to death, I've been trying to decide what I'd like better, to die or to keep on living. And he says, I'm torn between the two. He's secure. When he says here, if by any means possible, he means any step that's in a step in that direction. Any means possible, he might attain the resurrection of the dead. Whatever is in front of him, come what may, this is where he's headed. That's what that phrase means. Okay? But he calls it the resurrection of the dead. You see, this is one of the primary ways the Bible describes both where we're at as human beings and where through Jesus Christ God is taking us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we start. What God does for us in Jesus Christ is nothing short of giving us life. And what God will ultimately do is give us eternal life. And that word eternal, if you weren't familiar, uh, is not just a word that speaks of duration. In fact, the early authors in the New Testament who use this word hardly ever implying time. They're always implying quality. Eternal life as in the same life of the eternal God. But that's the destination he has in mind. Now, if this is secure, and if you're never going to finish, if Paul on his deathbed can say, not that I've attained yet, and if that final lap you're going to be carried by the God who sent his son to die for you, 
If the perfection is guaranteed and you're not going to get there in, your, in this life, why not just kick back and wait? Why isn't the Christian life one of just sitting and resting? Why can't we just, like when we play Monopoly, be like, okay, I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card, I don't have to worry, and just play casually? How is it that this mindset, where he says where I'm heading is nothing short of, like we talked about this morning, resurrection from the dead, why all that effort? Chill. Relax, Paul. I want you to notice what it says again in verse 10. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Now he goes on to say, and the fellowship of his sufferings that I might be conformed to the image of his death so that, but he doesn't start with death that leads to resurrection. He starts with the power of the resurrection. Let me give you an illustration this morning. Imagine with me that you are homeless and destitute that you have nothing but debt, that life is incredibly difficult and it's hand to mouth, and then you discover you have a rich uncle. And out of the blue, he calls you and he says, when I die, I'm going to give you everything I have. And if you'd like, you can move in with me now. How many of you would go, oh, that's great. I just have to wait for him to die and then I'll have everything. Everything's taken care of and continue to live on the streets and continue to struggle. You see, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is not just sealed our future, but made himself available to us now. It's not just that we might obtain the resurrection of the dead, but that we might know him and the power of his resurrection now. The only thing that's wrong with that illustration, outside of the fact that it's not God we're waiting to die, uh, waiting for to die, but ourselves, uh, but also the fact that the wealth is not merely the wealth of God, it is God. And there's something that rings false about this comfort that says, what's coming in my future is like we saw in our catechism this morning, eternal life with God that has no enjoyment of that in the present. Here's, here's the thing. Paul is pressing on because he really can taste more and more of that power now. He really can, by the help of the Holy Spirit and the plan of God, become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. He really can taste all the riches of Christ Jesus now. And so he looks at that and he goes, I want as much of that as I can experience. He makes that his one thing. I want to look at one other way that he puts it. Look again at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why is he so rabid about attaining? Because he has been he says, Jesus took hold of me for a purpose, and I want to accomplish that purpose. In fact, here we get where that security comes from. When the Bible uses a race metaphor here, it, it uses a common metaphor that we often use in many uh, understandings, philosophies of life, religion. Right? There's some sort of a race we're running that we're trying to get somewhere 
before we die. The difference is, here, the race follows salvation, doesn't precede it. Okay? And so for us, our eternal fate is not based on where we place in the race or if we cross the finish line. But because Jesus has saved us, we run. And so he says here that Jesus has made him his own. Some of us have had experience in life with human relationships where we were the one, fully to our benefit, who were pursued. Sometimes it's romantic, right? You're not really into a person and they just keep chasing you. And it's not just that you get tired of running you actually start to realize there's a value there. Some of us have experienced it in other relationships, but we've all experienced it in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me help you understand something that we often get wrong as human beings. We think oftentimes that it's God who is lost and we who are looking for him, that we're the seekers, that we're the searchers, that we're the ones who are out there doing the work to find God. The story the Bible tells is different. Like Adam in the garden hiding and God coming looking for him, so also goes the entire story of the Bible. That before you were looking for God, God sent Jesus Christ. Before you understood the depths of your problems and your need for salvation, Jesus was working on saving you. Before you chose Jesus, Jesus chose you you. That's what he means here in this phrase, called. Because of this, we run our race not with fear, not with trepidation, but with confidence and joy and peace. But that doesn't mean we run it less fervently. In some ways, it should drive us to run it more fervently. So what is the one thing that he does here? Return to verse 13. He says, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Okay. The first thing he does is he doesn't, he doesn't feel like he's arrived. We've touched on this this morning already. He doesn't settle where he's at. And the truth is, this is different, once again, than other religious systems and philosophies of life. Most other systems, you're in one of two places. If you believe that what you have to do is on your shoulders, either you will be out of fear and in a place of danger, running until you're out of breath, doing everything you can to get everything set, trying to get all of your ducks in a row to keep God off your back, or you'll be sitting because you've done everything that needs to be done, and so you actually are in a place of lackadaisicalness, if if I can create a word. You're in a place of leisure. You've retired. I'm enough. I don't need to do anything else. The Christian life is the only one that gives us total confidence and sustains a realistic longing for change. And that's what Paul has here. So what does he do? He says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
Let's unpack that race metaphor there uh, for a second. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Imagine you're running a race. In fact, let's do something that's more reasonable. Remember the last time you watched somebody run a race? Remember the last time you watched in the Olympics the 100-yard dash or something like that? Did you ever see the runner in the front of the race turn around and see how people were doing behind him? Never once, right? Because you cannot run effectively and look somewhere else. As much as keep your eye on the ball is a thing in other sports, keep your eye on the finish line is the essence of running. Okay? At best, you'll see a runner glance you know, in his peripheral to see if anybody's keeping up with him. But imagine what would happen if you were running a race and you tried to look behind you. It's disaster. I mean, if you're running that fast, it may actually be the end of your run. You could take a pretty good tumble. But at the very least, you're going to slow up quite a bit. Now, clearly, Paul doesn't mean here when he says, forgetting the things that are behind, that you should just delete all of the files that are postmarked 2017 and behind and forget it. He also clearly doesn't mean here that we should start from scratch every year. But what he means is that our focus should be forward and not backwards. When you drive, you have a rearview mirror, and that's helpful. But you don't drive focused on the rearview mirror. That would be disastrous. Okay. But I want you to notice here that when we talk about forgetting what lies behind, that can be positive or negative. For some of us, the thing that is holding you back from this one thing that Paul does this morning is regrets. You're f- so focused on the way you blew it, on the relationships you destroyed, on the way that you let God down, on the way that you scorned God's love, and maybe not even before you were a Christian, but in this last year. There's this thing that you did that haunts you. get it. You say, but, but I can't. It's horrible. Yes, and Jesus died for it, and that's what forgiveness is all about. God cared so much about your sins that he sent Jesus to pay the full penalty of them. Don't fake yourself out in thinking that you care about them more because you refuse to be forgiven. Take it. Receive it. In faith, go, this is what Christ died for. I'm cleansed by his blood. God has forgiven it. Let it go. For many of us, what lies behind is something that was done to us. And whether we voice it to other people or not, it's a defining characteristic of our identity. I am a victim. I am the product of my upbringing. I am what's happened to me. And those things are serious. And they have to be dealt with. And I don't want you to take this as a trite statement. But what will ultimately and finally define you at the end of your life is not that thing. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is the hearts of all the suits. It will trumpet. It will take the round. Okay. It is more important. And it won't always feel that way. But Jesus says when we get to heaven, he will wipe away every tear. Lay it aside this morning. Both of those things you have to do with God's help. 
don't think that Jesus has just saved you and set you at the front line and goes, okay, see you when you get to the finish line. The life that, Jesus, uh, that Paul is talking about here is a life of knowing Christ. That means regularly interacting, a deeper relationship. The word there for know is not that I might know about Christ, but that I might actually know him relationally. And that's the essence of getting over whatever it is that's holding you back in the past. But we need to recognize this morning that it's not always negative. Sometimes it's positive. And for many of us, the thing that we need to forget that's behind is the glory days of our Christian life. It's the great victory that we've accomplished. It's the thing that goes, that's enough. Now I can retire. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who's a Christian, and I'll get to talk to them about their Christian life. And the place where their focus is five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They'll tell me about how God was mightily working in their lives and used them in this period of their time. And the truth is, God is sovereign. He does what he wants. I read about a guy in England a while ago who had a church with about a dozen people in it. 25 years and then God did something crazy and there was this huge revival for five years and his church was packed to the brim and he was touring around and there was this national thing happening and then after the five years everything just kind of settled down again that's the way life is but the thing is you can only live your life in today and the book of Hebrews says today is the day of salvation what does God want to do in your life today what does he have for you now? Where is he working now? That's the only day that you get any concern in. Because it's the only one that you're an active participant in. And so when you talk about your relationship with Jesus and what it's like, do you talk about yesterday? Do you get caught in a Beatles song? Is it just reflection? Or is it relationship? Is it active? Is it present tense? This morning, I would encourage you for today and every day this year, forget what lies behind. And he says, strain forward to what lies ahead. The idea here is, right, of the chest just breaking through the tape, right? It's of winning by a nose. It's every muscle leaning forward into the run. In fact, he uses what I think is a stronger word in the next sentence. Notice what he says in verse 14. I press on towards the goal. Now, that word press doesn't seem like very much. But do you know how it's usually translated in the New Testament over 25 times? Persecute. That's what this word is. It's a word that means to persecute. In fact, this provides us a good contrast between Paul's life before or after Jesus. Before Jesus, he persecuted the church. Same word. He chased after them. He ran after them. In fact, Jesus saved him, according to Acts 9, still breathing threats against the church. On his way to the road, on, on the road to Damascus, on his way with a piece of paper in hand that would al allow him to throw Christians in prison in Damascus. He was devoted to destroying Christianity. That's the word that he uses now. And I think for some of us, that provides a really healthy contrast. How much did you devote your life? How much did you pursue these other things before there was Jesus? 
how much energy did you expend on column A and column B? How much time did you devote to these false gods that could not save you? That's the way, the baseline, you should follow Jesus. That's what he uses here. He redeems this word and he says, I used to chase after the church, which was literally persecuting Christ himself. Remember, read Acts chapter 9. He says, but now I chase after the goal, the prize. He says, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does it look like for this to be the one thing in our life? Like I said, there's lots of other good things you could and should devote your time to. If your goal for this year is get out of debt, do that. Do it. Eat PB&J if you have to. Do it. It's good. But for something to be the one thing, what does it have to be? It has to be the one that nothing else will interfere with. It has to be the one in an either-or that always wins. It has to be the one of which there's no other one. You can't say, I'm all about this and anything else. The one thing has to be the one thing. And I would encourage you this year, as we start a new year tomorrow, to choose a better one thing. One that is what God has for you in Jesus Christ. It's one thing to have good goals, but what if you have God's goals? Choose the one thing that comes with the power of his resurrection. Think of that imagery for a second. The thing that took the dead corpse of Jesus and brought it back to life is available to you to work in your dead relationships and bring them back to life to work into the places where you're imprisoned in your habits and bring you freedom you see the worst problem with New Year's resolutions is that you're the ones who have to keep them that's why they always go sideways you are who you are today. Don't think when you wake up tomorrow you'll be a new person. But when you add the power of his resurrection, when you integrate Jesus into that solution, when what you're doing is getting in touch with your Savior, then guess what? You get saved. Not just once and for all, but regularly and continually. The things that have happened in your life, the glory days of your Christian life are not behind you. God has things for you now, for this year. This one thing you should do. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward. Lean into it. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, my advice is the same. This should be your one thing, too. And I know your starting place is different. It might even be accurate to say that it's behind the blocks. But even if that's the case, what's available to you here is what you're looking for. 
It's that satisfaction that you're scratching the surface of and can't seem to get to. It's that sense of purpose that you know exists, that meaning in the universe that you know is there but you can't make sense of. It is the full and total reality of the God who is love and who is chasing after you and who maybe even this morning is knocking on the door, taking hold of you. If you go, I'm not sure I'm interested, just, just do me the honor of playing this little game. Give me your one thing. You don't have to shout it out. Just think it to yourself. And when I say why, give me your answer. And when I say why, give me your answer and drill down as deep as you can and tell me what's really there. And tell me what of significance will survive your funeral. And tell me what you found that is so great that you're not willing to weigh the possibility that Jesus is something better. Listen, the greatest thing that keeps people from Christ is the same thing that Paul's afraid of keeping him from pressing on. It's this sense that I've already got it. It's self-satisfaction, comfort, and contentment that keeps us from Christ. That's true of us this morning as Christians. And it's true this morning of non-Christians. Have you ever dared to look into the abyss of your own life? And you got to watch out. Nietzsche told us that when you look in the abyss, the abyss looks back. That's why most of us don't want to look. But before you can understand if Christ is, before you can understand if Christ is the solution for you, you have to get pr relatively well acquainted with the problem. So that would be my encouragement. As you take inventory, stop excusing yourself. Stop looking back over the year and going, well, I'll do better next year. How many years now in a row have you said that? That's the resolution you haven't kept. When you look at a line of broken relationships and a trail of dead behind you, and you every single time blame the other person, don't forget that the common denominator in all of them is you. Think of all the times you've arrived in your life, where you've set the horizon, where you've set the finish line, and you've gotten there. Have any of us sat down and gone, that's it, I found it, I'm done. Let's read the passage through again, and then we'll pray. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, for all of us this morning, we are prone to slacken the pace, to turn our eyes elsewhere and to take detours off the track, to settle and sit down 
and even sometimes turn around and walk backwards. But for most of us who know you and have experienced your love, we're like the, the lost son in Jesus' parable who may find ourselves eating with the pigs with nothing in our pocket, but then we come to ourselves and remember the house of our Father. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't settle as we make our plans for 2018, as we reflect on the new year, as we make our resolutions, that we wouldn't settle for anything less than the purpose for which you obtained us, than the resurrection of the dead, that we wouldn't settle for anything less to know you more fully and deeply and overflowingly in transformation this year. I pray, God, that you would show us the distractions, the other competing one things that are uh, right up there, the ands in our life that we tack on, that this would become the one thing and it would be at any cost. And I thank you, Lord, that you're so gracious that you've given us both Paul's example and your word this morning because you want us to live the best life, the abundant life, Jesus called it. You want us to taste and experience so much of who you are and what you have for us now. You've given us everything we need. And so I pray, Lord, that we would learn, like the author of Hebrews to calls us, to run the race with endurance, laying aside every sin that so easily ensnares us. Every distraction, Lord, every burden. I pray for each one of us that 2018 would be the best year in our lives as Christians on record. And I thank you, Lord, that this is a prayer we can pray in confidence because it is your will. And it will be accomplished through your power. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As we worship this morning, please, if you're a Christian, feel free to come forward and partake of communion.